Welcome to season four of the Dynamic Leader podcast. My name is Shelley Flett. I believe that leadership at its core requires strong relationships, the ability to sit in a space of genuine curiosity and the courage to build capability in others. I believe great leaders are lifelong learners. And so my intention is to help you to continue your learning journey by bringing you new perspectives from experts in their field. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. Uh, Today, we are talking about meaningful work and what it looks like to have fulfillment, not just in our lives, but in our careers. I have uh, author um, Nina Mapson-Bone, who is the Managing Director of Beaumont People and President and Chair of the Recruitment, Consulting and Staffing Association of Australia and New Zealand, and the Chair of the Development Committee uh, for North Foundation. She has experienced firsthand the power of work to transform your life and through her work um, in recruitment has um, seen how every outcome at work improves when people are engaged in meaningful work. Saying all these things, I'm getting really stuck on words today and I'm actually wondering whether there's a connection between fulfillment and meaningful work, but thank you, Nina, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here, Shelley. It's not ideal to be um, recording a podcast and being stuck with words, but it's been an issue for today and uh, appreciate it. Okay. it makes it real, right? makes it authentic. <laughs> it really does. There's things in my head that I'm thinking of and, you know, sometimes I think this is a really good perhaps way to start the conversation is sometimes our mind is going in one direction and we kind of feel like we're in flow of where our mind is. And then we start talking and communicating with people and you realize, oh, I'm not in the same place. (laughs) Yeah. You're actually talking about strengths. When we work to our strengths, that's when we're in that flow state and we're energized by what we're doing. And, you know, and sometimes it's harder to shift from that state to other states. So that's probably what you've just experienced. Yeah, I think I haven't done a lot of talking today. So it's been that real internal thinking through things, reflecting, contemplating. Um, and you're my first conversation <laughs> of the day and it's the afternoon. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting. But I guess people could think too much into that, couldn't they? Yeah, so it's interesting when we did the research into meaningful work and what kicked us off on this journey is that the thing that we found was that there is everyone's path to meaningful work is unique. So it's very and there are four main factors of it as well. So if you get too kind of focused on one one factor, the individual factor, which is kind of what we're touching on here with strengths is one of the subsets or involved in one of the subsets of it. you're not getting a holistic picture of what meaningful work is for you. So yes, you need to, you know, create time. And it sounds like you've had some time to do this today to sort of stop and think and, you know, really weigh up different things. Yeah, absolutely. So on the topic, how would you, like, how do you define meaningful work and how did you come up with the definition? Yeah, so um, I'll give you the definition first and then I'll give you the background story. So, So we define meaningful work as the importance an individual, you, Shelley, might place on your work, meeting your your strengths, your beliefs, your values, your goals, and your personal narrative, the story you tell yourself about work, but in the context of your social and cultural environment. And that's a really important aspect of it, because um, the reason we did the research in the first place was we uh, have a purpose here at Beaumont People to connect people to meaningful work and create more opportunities for meaningful work. So we thought, well, we need to be true to this purpose. We'll look up what meaningful work actually is. 
And we were astounded to discover that there had never been any research specifically for Australians around what meaningful work was. And there had never been any research anywhere in the world that combined both the psychological, those sort of individual pieces, um, aspects of meaningful work, and the sociological aspects of meaningful work, how much the value, the culture we're in assigns to the work we do, and also things like our access and means. So then we decided we had to kick off some research, find out what it was, and that started us on this journey. That's awesome, Uh, because you hear a lot, um, you hear the word used a lot, and it kind of risks becoming one of those cringe words where it's overused and um but it's being used enough I think you said in your book that you turned off the notifications um (laughs) what made you turn them on to start with (laughs) so I I sort of started going down a rabbit hole of meaningful work I love it I got so into it and I, I got so passionate about the fact that if we can share this message then as a you know as you said at the intro every outcome improves it's better for individuals but it's also better for companies and it's better for families and societies and all sorts of things so I got very passionate about it so I start I turned on alert so that I could see what was happening and to see if there were was more research coming out in addition to what we've done see what other organizations were doing but you're right it gets used a lot I mean in almost every job ad that gets put up you know I don't know how many but probably 10% say this is meaningful work and I sometimes read the ad and think to myself will it be or have you really understood what it is or you know so so I did have to I have it changed the settings I still have all the alerts but I just get them grouped once a day now instead of getting a ping every time uh, have you noticed noticed the alerts um you know is there seasonality is there trends with the no, it's consistent. It's pretty consistent. Yeah. So I see it coming through all the, yeah, all the time. There's always, there's always a, you know, a significant amount in the daily alert. So it does get banded around a lot. It's got more popular. So I think it's becoming a bigger trend. Yeah. Right. Because I've been watching it for four years now. Um, and so what in the research, was there anything in the research that surprised you that would be useful for leaders to know about? Yes. So, the big one is, is that piece I just touched on, that everyone's path is unique. There are some factors of meaningful work that are more popular. So as a leader, it helps if you know either what's popular or the ways in which your organisation specifically provides meaningful work so that you can kind of talk to, you know, we talk about it really helps with attraction and retention of your team. So you don't have to be really good at all of the factors. You just have to know which ones you do well and make sure you're amplifying that internally and externally to both retain and attract people because they will perform better and your organization will perform better. So um, I think the thing that I found that really surprised me was the go-to, you know, people go to things like culture or leadership that, you know, people think, oh, isn't meaningful work just about having a great workplace. And it's so much more in depth than that. So it's going beyond the kind of go-tos and understanding that it is unique for every individual. Yeah, for sure. Um, And is there like are there things that you've identified in workplaces that leaders are doing that actually doesn't contribute to meaningful work? Because when you you know your your data demonstrates that people are likely to stay because of meaningful work, but they're also likely to leave because of meaningful work or where there's a lack thereof. Is there things that uh, leaders are doing? And I'll be like specific. I remember when I was leading a team, it was like, oh, the team's looking a bit down. I'm going to order some pizzas. <laughs> was a contact center and it did work at the time um but you know it's like it's the let's just give them give them a boost I don't really think things like that drive meaningful work it, 
I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, so I think it, so it's slightly different for every organisation um, and I, it kind of comes back to that tailoring it for your audience. So in a contact centre, as you say, that might have been, you know, a really useful thing to do, but at a kind of senior leadership group, that's probably not going to cut the mustard. So it's about tailoring things that you're doing. But the, the biggest, um, the two biggest tensions that I see come up that are consistent, and this is more about spotting the tension rather than how, how you're demonstrating the behaviour. But one is that one of the things that we see... Um, that are important factors of meaningful work around leadership is that people want absolutely categorically want to have the trust of their managers. That was the most popular factor in our initial research back in 2019. But very high up the list is having clear direction from your manager. And so there's kind of a tension between too much trust and you're not getting enough direction, too much direction and you feel like you're being micromanaged. And so for leaders, understanding where that line is for your team, and that might depend on their seniority, their experience, how new they are in the role, their personality style. So it requires a different level and maturity of leadership that we haven't had to think about before. So that's that's the first one. Um, and I think getting that tension right is really crucial. And then the second one is understanding um, that you what you're demonstrating needs to be in line with who you are and what your values is as an organization and for the job you know when I think about our chief sort of finance person if I celebrated her by doing a big public speech and making a fuss of her she would be mortified by that and that's not in line with her personal values because she doesn't seek the limelight so are we making sure that we're not contradicting sort of our external behaviors in line with people's values and what's important to them Mm, I've been doing a little bit of work around values with leaders over the past couple of years. And um, it's an interesting one because values do kind of sit in that unconscious space. Um, And so it's teaching leaders just to start to observe for um, language and response to things. And, you know, I sort of, when I was looking, when I was reading your book, I was thinking um, if we were to just hone in on being able to understand the values and the drivers of individuals at an individual level, the difference that that itself could make. But I, I like how you've got the then the four themes around, you know, individual, then organisation, um I've forgotten social job and, job and societal and so job individual and job organization and societal the four yeah, key factors yeah so yeah your thoughts around like how the values and understanding values can then contribute or, or support the the other areas so what I encourage is uh, this one piece around cultural diversity first which is that um we know all the stats show and i'm sure you've read the articles yourself shelly that when a when an organization is more has a more diverse workforce it is better performing generally but it's actually harder to get a diverse workforce performing well because there are different values then and different you know beliefs and different systems and different cultural backgrounds at play so so coming up with values that are human values regardless of those differences that everybody absolutely aligns themselves to that aren't related to the things that kind of highlight a difference. They're more related to actually what connects us is crucial. So that's the first thing is making sure that your values are genuinely human values. And sometimes uh, in organizations, I see leaders do value statements and they're just a bit trendy and that may not work for certain, you know, different types of groups, for example. And then the other thing is actually 
going to the effort of um, articulating the behavior you're looking for in those values and the behavior you won't accept and acknowledging that sometimes those behaviors happen and what circumstances in your organization has caused those behaviors so you can continually improve and work on them including for yourself as the leader because you know I know um, for example one of my one of our values here is excellence but if I'm busy and I'm in a rush I might cut a corner to get something done now that's not displaying excellence right so you need to be able to call each other out on these things so really creating true language and true values that are human that everybody understands and they understand the behavior and they see that then demonstrated or picked up on it's okay for anybody to say to somebody else hey did you mean to do that because you know it's not really what we're trying to achieve from a values perspective um and so that's values that an organization has come up with and it's a collective what about values like your your values versus my values how Like I see that as being really important to be able to differentiate. And then, you know, even when you know, okay, I have a a top, I have a really high value around, um, you know, fun and adventure, but what that means to me isn't necessarily what it means to the next person. So do we need to do what you've just spoken about from a team level at an individual level as well? Yeah. So I think one of the things that you can do if you want to really separate yourself as a leader is if you take the time to understand the individuals in your team and what their personal values are, what their drivers are, what their motivations are, you can. And, and then this that's understanding their individual factors. But then using that, you can actually adapt the job factor. You can tweak the job to better suit them. There's an awful lot we can do. We don't realize because we kind of tend to have people in roles, doing roles that, you know, somebody's already done. Betty left, she'd been here for 10 years. We just rehired somebody with the same job description. We didn't spend much time thinking about it. If you bring people in and you talk to them about how could we tweak your job to make it more meaningful to you? What what are you trying to achieve? What are your values? Mm. You might be surprised and they will people will be motivated to come up with ideas around this because they want their job to be meaningful. And this is where they then perform better if they're given that opportunity, which is better for the organization as well. But it takes more proactivity and more individualization. So what makes it difficult is creating the time and space to make it happen. It's interesting you say that because I've heard of some managers who are actually hiring for the person and then creating the role around the person versus the other way. And I see pros and cons for for each of those but um is there a do you think that's where we're we're going to be moving to is to can we can we put a little bit of a an outline together of what's the role what is it that we need to deliver and then and then tweak it is that do you think that's where we're going in the future given that meaningful work hasn't slowed down in its importance yeah well all the um all the kind of trends that I look at for the future of work show that it will just continue to be even more important as well so I think there's a piece around um ensuring that you are looking at what are the outcomes you need the role to achieve because as an organization as a leader you still have certain outcomes that you have to achieve there's no avoiding that you need your organization to be successful or there won't be the you know the opportunities available so so what are the outcomes you need to achieve? But are there different ways you could do it? To the, to, and the world is changing so fast. You know, you might be able to outsource some of that. You might be able to put some of that through AI. You might be able to, you know, and you then can look, okay, what do we need and what do we need human beings to do? And how can we tie that in? And you can almost create, um, if you don't have somebody in the role already, if it's an attraction piece, you're almost creating an avatar of 
the ways in which it might be meaningful and building your recruitment process around that. Or if you have somebody in the role originally, and I actually share this story in the book, we did this with our two marketing graduates who joined us that when they first started, we had one looking at marketing for candidates, one looking at marketing for for job, you know, for um, clients, for hiring managers, and we separated their job functions that way, but it wasn't working for them because they actually had different strengths, different values. So we sat down with them and said, here's all the things we need to achieve. What do you like? What do you like? What don't you like? What don't you like? Let's completely rearrange who does what. And the performance went through the roof. It was amazing. So it's being open to the, you know, not being sort of too stuck into one view of how things have to be done. How much resistance do you get when you kind of raise that as um, possible approaches with with roles? Yeah. So um, it depends on the it depends on the maturity of the organization and also where they're at from a headspace and time and resources the biggest issue people almost always want to do it emotionally because they see it for themselves they get it you know they want to be engaged in meaningful work themselves but the biggest resistance is time and resources because it takes time and energy to do this proactively and it's like I always say it's like health it's like a habit it takes more effort up front but the results are better in the long run so it's trying to change your mindset but you can't you can't force someone into it. They have to be ready to come on the journey. Those organisations that have are seeing huge difference. Um, Todd, who's one of the people in the book, he's, uh, I'm sure he won't mind me sharing this, it's in the book, he's the managing partner at Northrop Engineers, and they, they're now talking about meaningful opportunities across their whole organisation and looking at how they can start to implement some of the theory to kind of fundamentally change how they attract and develop their people from within. So it's, it's worth doing, it's worth investing mm-hmm. in. And who do you think is well-placed to start um take you know shifting the approach is it the hiring manager or does it start with hr pnc like you know the recruiter like where does it start do you think like almost everything shelly it starts at the top so if you don't have you know if your ceo is not bought into this you can still do it at a microcosm level or at a team level and you can create meaningful work within your team but it becomes hard if those around you are in other departments or your leaders are not on the journey with you because then as the leader you're kind of almost acting as an umbrella the whole time to kind of keep that going and that's then one of the things that might make your role less meaningful so it really helps if you you know if you get your most senior person on board and bring them along for the journey. Mm. Actually you just um, made me think about um, you know do do leaders have to start with what's meaningful to them and whether they're achieving it before they then engage in these conversations with their, their staff yeah. Absolutely. So I, I mean, it's one of the last things I say in the book is start with yourself. You know, if you're, if you're a leader reading this and you want to do this, start with yourself, because if you're not engaged in meaningful work yourself, your team will pick it up and they'll know it. You know, you, I don't any, got any parents watching you, your children know in a heartbeat if you're saying something you don't actually believe in. Um, so you have to be authentic in yourself and trying to find meaningful work for yourself first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. Um meaningful work for you through your career so I know you you know you you're talking about it but when did meaningful work start to kind of pop up for you as being as being important um so it's been important all the way through but I didn't realize I didn't have the terminology or the understanding of the theory to articulate it but I you know when I talk about um I've seen how meaningful work transforms lives both my parents lost their jobs in the recession of the 1990s and I saw that and I would have been 
a teenager at the time and I saw that fundamentally shift the dynamics of our family and our situation and all of those kind of things. So I totally understand um, how, you know, we are impacted by work. And, and I went on to, when I was at university, I had, you know, basically no financial support from my family as a result, not, you know, not uh, through any fault of their own, but just the circumstances that we are. So I kind of worked from the bottom up to, you know, to achieve things myself. So I could see from the very beginning how important it was. And I always had a personal tension around wanting financial security as a result, but also wanting to do good in the world. And I felt for a long time that you couldn't do both. And I really struggled with that tension. That's a classic example of the, the individual fighting the societal piece. I wanted to do good, but all the things I could see that did good didn't give me a level of financial security I was after. And so it's taken me my kind of whole career to learn how I could do that. And it's really been in the last 10 years that I've been putting the theory properly into practice. And so knowing your own journey and the time it takes, can you can you shortcut it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Um, so if you understand, if you, you know, one of the reasons we, so we built a Bone People Built a Meaningful Work Profile Tool, which actually allows people to measure it for themselves. We've made it free and available for anyone to use anywhere in the world. Um, so one of the things is just understanding. And I think taking that time to understanding, looking at that, reading the book, you know, talking over with colleagues, putting time and effort into this. Too many people kind of knee jerk their careers. They go from one thing to the next things and leaders knee jerk sometimes as well, you know, and I've been as guilty of it as any other leader. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try this. That didn't, we don't give ourselves the time and space to, to, kind of do the proactive thinking work that's needed so that's the way to shortcut it but it doesn't feel like a shortcut in the moment because it's more work up front but it Absolutely. will speed up down the track so how do you create because there's a lot of things that leaders um, need to be slowing down for today um, creating you know good deep trusting relationships which you talk about um, what's the what's the narrative because I find that if it's not on fire it won't necessarily be given a priority. So what is the, what, I mean, I don't know whether your research covers this, but what is the risk if we don't start to focus on meaningful work? Yeah. So I do, I do cover this. I, th I think this is the biggest um, leadership challenge of our generation because the, because of what's coming. So the demographics in our um, population are changing. We're going to have over 4 million boomers leave the workforce in the, in, you know, by 2030 and the workforce, the bulk of the workforce will be made up by Gen Y and Gen Z and leaders will be my age. The Gen Xers will be in leadership positions. Now, the, the coming workforce, they are more passionate about meaningful work than anything else. There's a, a demographer I refer to in the book, Simon Christian Mack, who talks about this and, and has the stats to back it up. It is going to be crucial to them. You tie that in with the fact that because of the demographics, we're going to have a continued talent shortage for the next five to 10 years. There will be um, economic cycles within that. And obviously, depending on the economic cycle, there'll be ebbs and flows. But the general trend is towards talent shortage. And then you add AI on top, which makes it even trickier, right? Because the roles and the nature of work are going to fundamentally shift and the skills we need will be the human skills, the critical thinking, the resilience, the grit, the perseverance, those kind of things that people aren't necessarily going to have the opportunity to learn in the same way because they won't be doing the entry and middle-level jobs that teaches these skills because they will all be automated and, and done by AI. So... So the only way to separate yourself from your competition in the next five to 10 years is through getting this right. I believe, obviously, I'm very passionate about it. It's slightly subjective, 
But the reason I believe it is because there is no organisation that just at this stage can rely on computers alone. Everybody, you know, every organisation has people that they need to to run and function, whether you're a two person organisation or a 10,000 person organisation, you still need to get that people piece right. And this will be the thing I think that will separate you from your competition. So that leads me to (laughs) to ask if we're, if we're, if it's important to understand and recognize people's strengths, because strengths form part of what that meaningful work is at an individual level, is that right? Yeah. So in the individual um, factor, you've got subsets like motivations, goals, um, personal narrative, but strengths kind of underpin all of that. So I'm a big believer that because that's you're motivated when you're working to your strengths, your goals often align with things that are aligned to the strengths that you enjoy doing. So that strengths based approach really helps getting those individual factors kind of of meaningful work up. And is it safe to assume that you your strengths are your strengths because you started doing them at a young age and found that, yeah, that kind of works and then you carry it through, you become good at it and it's connected? Like how do we form strengths to start with? Yeah, so they come from three ways. They're nature, nurture and experience. So um, absolutely, we have we are born with certain strengths. You know, some of us, I was born a talker, as you can probably tell. So, you know, I was talking, you know, couldn't shut me up when I was a toddler. So some of them are nature. Some of them are nurture. You know, we, we were taught early, oh, you do that well. And because we got praise, we, we kind of did more of it, you know, and, and got there. And some of them is experience. We've technically learned or we've become good at something through the different experiences we've had in life. So it can come from any one of those three things. Okay, so nature or genetics aside, if we look at um, nurture and experience yeah. and we look at the strengths that we are, you know, potentially breeding in uh, and then we look at what's required from a skills level, is that is driving or creating roles that play to strengths dangerous territory given the nature of roles that will be required in the future um no I think actually it's the best thing you can do so I would um I would say it's almost the other way because um the strengths when you look at we use a a tool it's not our tool but we use a tool called the strengths profile it's a capfinity product there's a number of different tools you can use and you can do it by observation because it's just anything that you know when you're excited and you're in the flow and you're enjoying it and you're good at it that's pretty much what a strength is but most of the strengths are human strengths not all of them but the vast majority of them and so for me it's things like curiosity it's um uh, counterpoints so I like to debate and look at different points of views it's uh writing and it's um uh, speaking engaging narrator I think it's called is the proper strengths for it so some of my top strengths for example now At this point in time now, who knows what the next 20 years will bring, but certainly in the next five to 10 years, those human skills are still very much needed in the workplace. And some of the research, some of the skills they need, they're not being replaced by AI. Um, So you need to develop those skills, but you need to do it in a way that still adds value and still allows you to do the jobs that will be there in the future. So it's about thinking, what are the sort of data processing technical aspects of your role that might be automated? And how do you ensure that you are still learning those skills or those strengths or getting good at those strengths, nurturing those strengths so that they will still add value and where will they add value. So if I'm a leader listening right now, I'm like, that sounds way too hard. I need someone to come in and do this for me. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it 
is it as hard as what I so, feel yeah. like it, it yeah. could be? <laughs> yes, yes and no. So some, so um, what I think is that the point is that we as leaders need to go on this iterative journey as the world is changing. So you don't need to do all this tomorrow. Um, you know, I'm looking at things that I think are going to happen in the next five to 10 years. We don't have to solve it for tomorrow. But if we keep chipping away, we build and we grow. And the, but my point is those leaders that start the journey now and they could start small by just I mean, the first step could be how can I get my team better working to their strengths? Mm. You know, and and there is, you know, uh, I suggest some exercises in the book, but there's things you can do or you can, you know, as I say, you can either, you can spend a lot, lot of money on it or you can spend no money on it. But there are things you can do with your own teams just to get them performing better to their strengths. And then as you learn and understand more, then you might take the next step and the next step. So it's an iterative journey. And it sounds like it requires um, a decent level of awareness to go what's what's happening within like myself, how, because you talk about um, your individuals being unique and that, that they change, you know, we change and evolve over time is that, um, the it's important to have that awareness of self it's important to have awareness of our people and the the generation and acknowledging that gen y's and gen z's and obviously then gen alphas are coming through and will have different needs but then there's also this one around what's going on in the country in the world you know globally um and just being you know it's it's curiosity on on multiple different levels isn't it yeah, it's an individual, local, regional, national and international because there's so much help happening. But interesting that you talk about that awareness because um, the evidence shows, um, and I'm going to get the percentage wrong, but it's a stat from Tasha Urich, I quote, that shows that when you work to your strengths, so people are much more self-aware when they're working to their strengths when they won't. And something like, this is going to be incorrect, but it's something like 95% of us think we're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% of us actually are. So it's definitely worth spending the time to try and build those levels of awareness. Mm. Uh, and so strengths is one way. What are some other ways that a leader can, can build awareness of themselves? So I think um, awareness of self and awareness of others. So I think for me, I mean, this is something personal I've experienced, having really good mentoring coaching things like that really help some a safe space where you can seek feedback uh, where somebody's not going to be afraid to tell you if you you know you're not your best <laughs> that's not your greatest area whatever it might be yeah. peer-to-peer networking groups those kind of things are really useful um 360s you know there's all sorts of tools you can use and ask for feedback don't be afraid to ask in every if you if you have a psychologically safe workplace and that's a whole different discussion but if you do your people actually will be happy to give you feedback if you ask them. Finish every meeting with what What would you like me to stop, start or do differently? I mean, that's a simple question you can just ask at the end of every meeting and you'll keep, you know, keep doing that iterative improvement. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense. And, and when you're talking about um, when you were doing the research around meaningful work, did the number of hours that people work or the pressure, like there just feels like there's so much pressure in the workplace at the moment and that there's just this constant flow. And, you know, I talk to a lot of the leaders I work with about you have to stem the flow. If you don't, you, you're going to drown in it. Um, but are you, is that, do you, I, I feel like you'd lose the meaningfulness with the continued pressure and the, so is there a bit of a, problem that we need to resolve at that level 
It's a it's a great question, um, and it's I, I don't address it specifically that way, but there are certain aspects of it that come up that's worth touching on. So one is around the job design aspect, which you know, and how much pressure of work volume there is, is one of one of those aspects of meaningful work. But it's also different for every person. You know, the volume of work I can cope with might be different to the volume of work you can cope with. So it's about knowing where you are on that spectrum and making sure that your workload too little, if I love if I love being busy, is actually also as meaningless as too much. So getting that balance right is really important. But the other thing around the, the um, kind of, you started the question with uh, hours and the time, uh, and this was really interesting. We, and I did write a whole chapter on this because in the initial research, hours that allow for free time and flexibility was one of the factors that had come up in um, the initial academic review, review we had done of previous research. But when we did our survey for Australians, it didn't make the cut. It wasn't um, statistically valid at that point. Now, this was back in 2019. So at that point, people weren't as concerned about it. Now, since then, we get asked, I get asked all the time about flexibility and hours because it is a big, big thing and it became a massive thing through COVID. Um, so I draw on the research there from four day week, you know, from some of the things that have come out of those areas. Um, and when we recut the research in uh, which we'll be doing soon, I think to kind of because as things change, we need to review have has society changed in terms of what it views as factors of meaningful work. I have a feeling that it will very much come back in because I have this conversation with every leader. And here's an interesting stat um, that helps with this. Um, some of the research done by Future Forum shows that when employees, when your team have full control over their schedule, the outcomes are significantly better, but it's worse for the leaders because it creates more stress. It's harder for them. So it's kind of this tension between what's good for your team and what's good for you as a leader. And that's why we still have the that's why we still have those should people be in the office or work from home debate. And then what's the correlation <laughs> between more stress for the leader versus, uh, you know, that trust? It, you yeah. know is it stressful yeah. because they don't know how to trust or they don't that, yeah, yeah. exactly and how much is that leader development needed versus actually getting your people to do better and trying to work some of those things out and that's where you're then getting into the very kind of into the weeds of each organization that becomes more of a consulting one-on-one -on -one conversation but yeah interesting things to think about um, and I'm hoping that there'll be enough meaningfulness in leadership as a career path um, in the future because, you know, standing on the outside looking at leadership um, right now is very daunting to consider, so you know, the pressure, the expectations that leaders are supposed to meet from a business level, an individual level, a team, all of it kind of rests on their shoulders. It, it feels really heavy, I think. And you hit on an important point because the reason that meaningful work has become so important is because, um work and organizations have taken a place in our community that used to be held by other institutions you know by um, church groups or local community groups and so we off we now get a lot more of our identity and our relationships and our connections through work than we did in previous generations so so as leaders there is a lot more responsibility on you to carry these extra burdens absolutely but also that's what makes it more interesting and more exciting and some would say more rewarding. <laughs> and, more, and more rewarding, yeah, absolutely. So so um, meaningful work um, sounds like, because I didn't know that about, it makes so much sense when you say that, you know, the work that leaders are doing is replaced so much from a community um, standpoint and that it's not necessarily 
just about meaningful work, but it's about a meaningful life more broadly, isn't it? Yeah, I, I actually had a lovely text um, from one of the people that's in the book after we ha- after we had the book launch, and she sent me this text about um, you're, you're more than what you do, Nina, is more about more, more than meaningful work. You're actually you actually fight for freedom. You're a freedom fighter, is what she wrote in this text. And I thought, well, that's lovely. That's one way of looking at. But the point being that work now has so- a ripple effect to everything we do. It affects our family. Obviously, it affects our personal kind of financial circumstances and our security. But that also has broader effects to economies you know, and security from a national level and all of those kind of things. So it really is, I mean, again, obviously I'm slightly biased in this regard, but I think it's foundational to everything we do. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and I, I do um, see that there's a possible connection between um, longevity and doing things in our lives that are meaningful. And I do wonder whether we can prevent some of the baby boomers from exiting the workplace because we are designing roles that are more meaningful, that can tap into their wisdom and their experience and their skill set that we've lost because so many people have said, I'm done with it. See you later. You know, we've lost so much experience in in some roles um, because people have had enough and they're just like, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm making a tree change. I'm going to buy a cafe. I'm going to go, you know, there's been some crazy stories about what people have done over the last couple of years, but if we can create more meaningful opportunities, do you think we can hold on to some of our older generation? Yeah. So I think it's an interest. This is a whole another interesting debate. You know, um, there's various things we need to tackle to get there. So I'd love that to happen. Then I think it's great, but we need to tackle ageism in the workforce. And that's a real thing. So there's a big piece there. Um, again, a bit like all, you know, all the stats actually show that um, more mature workers are better performing in all sorts of ways. But for some reason, we still have a challenge as a society. We also have some regulatory things we need to tackle around, you know, there's certain, you know, if you're working certain hours, you can't access super and, you know, so there's actually some kind of, we need some kind of local government support and, and, and national government support to actually work out how we can make these uh, opportunities more flexible. Um, and flexible work is often a hot topic, to, you know, from a political perspective. So that's a challenge that needs to be overcome. But I, but if we can, I think it's crucial because, um, what I've seen when I've talked to people about this is, and you hit on it exactly right, there is what, what a lot of people do in retirement or semi-retirement is they either go into consulting and they keep their hours just where they need to keep them to be able to also access the other things they need to access, or they go back to one of the things that they first ever did. You know, I talked to someone who one of their first jobs was as a swim instructor, and she has every intention to going back to being a swim instructor when she retires, following a very successful corporate career. But you, your point is valid, Shelley. Then we lose all that knowledge and all that experience when actually if we could allow her the freedom and the flexibility, and this is where leaders come in, we need to get better at part-time and freedom and flexibility and all of those things too. So it's a bit of a total approach needed to make that work. And and then it makes you kind of go, well, what other, what other areas can we start to tap into? You know, people who, who can't, who can't work physically and, and might not be mentally skilled from a young age, but could learn it. And, you know, you, you start to, Oh gosh, you must've got so lost in the, <laughs> yes. where do I go? And you know, how much do I share in this book? <laughs> That's what good editors are for. About a third of it was cut Shelley. So uh, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even things like barriers to entry and how do you create meaningful work for, you know, all of sorts of people that have barriers to entry to work. Yeah. I mean, it, you can absolutely go down the rabbit hole with this 
Well done on the book. I think um, I love the concept of meaningful work and like you, I spent, you know, a, a couple of decades trying to figure out what that was and thought I had an idea and then, you know, was a little bit off the mark, but um, it's so nice to be doing the work that I love and, and, and it's meaningful and I can make it meaningful every day. And mindset is a big part of that as well, which is interesting. One of the things I, I talk to people about is because your mindset and your personal narrative, the, the story you tell yourself about work is crucial. And sometimes if there's a bit of a tension, you need to decide whether you need to change the job or whether you need to change the story you tell yourself. Because, um, you know, one of the things that we see is, is a bit of a joke, but, you know, there's a sort of an old saying that people get promoted to their level of incompetence. So they do really <laughs> well, do really well. And then they, you know, and then they kind of stall at the bit that they, and actually so many of those people are, were happier in the job below and did better and you know but how you how you but you need to change the narrative for yourself to be able to accept that because that's a hard thing on an ego level to to do and to go backwards sometimes when actually that's the thing that would give you meaningful work for example so yeah that narrative that story we tell ourselves the mindset is crucial yeah yeah that's right I kind of go well if I'm on version like 10.5 in a 12-month period I'm probably not in the right role <laughs> the narrative <laughs> is, just doesn't seem to be fitting I think it's time to make a decision um no it's been a great conversation Nina thank you so much for joining us um and oh, I've loved it definitely recommend um our listeners grabbing a copy of uh, Nina's book Meaningful Work uh it, it really is as your tagline says um, it helps to unlock your unique path to career fulfillment. Um, so thanks again. And thank you everybody for listening. I'm looking forward to our next dynamic leader conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the dynamic leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.